Hey there, and seasonal salutations. Welcome to episode 34. As always, thank you for hitting that play or download button to have a listen to my ramblings about all things movie-related, past, present, and future. In today's episode, we're looking at two holiday-themed movies, different genres, different decades, and hell, they're from different centuries, but there is a link that connects them. First, there's 1949's Holiday Affair, starring film noir tough guy Robert Mitchum and future Oscar nominee Janet Leigh, arguably best known for one of cinema's most studied and analyzed and imitated and revered examples of editing, her fatal date with a motel room showerhead in 1960's Psycho. The other movie came around 55 years later and stars Lee's real-life daughter Jamie Lee Curtis, the so-called screen queen of the horror genre. She's, of course, famous for the Halloween franchise and horror flicks like The Fog and Prom Night and Terror Train. And for two actresses associated, for the most part anyway, with roles that involve shrinking away from the knife-wielding antics of sociopathic serial killers, it may seem counterintuitive to see them headlining holiday-themed movies that bring on the merry. But before we go any further, if recent conversations that I've had with a couple of people are any indication, there may be some listening thinking, holiday affair, what the hell is that? Well, let's just quote actress Lauren Bacall, as is customary at the beginning of each episode. It's not an old movie, if you haven't seen it. To be fair, not all newly discovered films are the stuff of legend, but there's always a chance that you'll see one and embrace it warmly. I'm your movie-loving host, Frank, and this is Silver Screeners. To look at both Holiday Affair and Christmas with the Cranks, we'll follow the usual format of most episodes and begin with a spoiler-free plot setup of the films, and then you'll get the spoiler alert for a spoiler-filled list of behind-the-scenes fun facts. And finally, we'll close out with a trivia segment and listen to shout-outs. So as the late, great Jackie Gleason always said, and away we go. It might help to put out there a couple of things about Janet Lee. How's this for brief? In California, in 1927... There was a baby girl born by the name of Jeanette Helen Morrison. Fast forward to 1949, and she's an actress in her early 20s using the screen name Janet Lee and signing on for the starring role in her 10th film, Holiday Affair. A modest little charmer directed by Don Hartman and based on the short story The Christmas Gift by John D. Weaver. Ms. Lee is getting an acting career up and running, and in Holiday Affair, she plays Connie Ennis, a World War II widow and single working mother, raising her son Timmy, played by Gordon Giebert, in New York City. As the opening credits get underway, we're treated to the visual of what at first appears to be a train route winding its way through the mountains, but a second or two later we realize it's a train set. The thing goes around and stops in front of a structure with a sign on it that says Palm Beach. The camera pans to the left to reveal that the train set is on a display table with about 8 to 10 kids standing around and looking at it in utter fascination. These 8 to 10 kids are looking in 8 to 10 different directions, which means one of two things. They were told to look all over the place for a sense of realism when it comes to kids in a toy store at Christmas time, or they were photogenic but just can't act worth a sh**. One girl can't even help herself and keeps stealing glances right into the camera lens. Anyway, there's movie tough guy Robert Mitchum behind the table playing store clerk Steve Mason, pouring flaky stuff from a box to simulate snowfall over the train set. The camera zooms out further to show the bustling atmosphere of this toy department. Back at the table, Connie Ennis, played by Janet Lee, thrusts her head into the frame suddenly from the left, knocking ten kids aside like bowling pins. And all out of breath, asks Steve, could you wait on me please? He tells her to wait her turn, the kid was in front of her. She replies, I know, but I want to buy one, meaning a train, not a kid. Steve begins the sales pitch, but she cuts him off and says, I'll take one, complete with all the attachments and accessories. He gives her a suspicious look, with good reason. She pays him in cash, the exact amount, declines any wrapping or delivery, and says she'll just take it with her. Well, all right then, Janet Lee's bread and butter as an actress was apparently playing frantic characters who high-pressure the salesman. 
Remember the scene in Psycho when she's trying to trade in her used car when she's on the lam having stolen $40,000 from her boss? That's the one I'd have picked for you myself. Uh, how much? Go ahead, spin it around the block. It looks fine. How much would it be with my car? You mean you don't want the usual day and I have to think it over? <laughs> you are in a hurry, aren't you? Somebody chasing you? Of course not. Please. Well, it's the first time the customer ever high-pressured the salesman. Connie then goes to a phone booth to call her office. The reveal is that she's a secret comparison shopper. Nothing that was illegal at the time, but certainly questionable. Stores would hire random schmoes to go to their competitors and buy their stuff so that they could compare cost and quality, that kind of thing. The idea was, was that the comparison shoppers would try on different wigs, maybe throw on some eyeglasses, go incognito, and then the items would be returned. This was a real thing, but if you were caught, you would end up in a blacklist of sorts and not allowed to shop anymore in the stores you were trying to pull one over on. So that's how Connie puts food in the table and clothes on her and her son's back. She arrives at her New York City apartment with a train in a box and another package as well. She's greeted by her little boy, Timmy. They call each other Mr. and Mrs. Ennis, which is a little weird, but there's a reason for it that comes out later on. There is admittedly some stealing right out of the playbook of Miracle on 34th Street here. A single mother raising her only child, emotionally guided to the extent where she tells her kid not to expect miracles because high expectations lead to high disappointments. Given that Miracle on 34th Street was an Oscar-winning hit just two years earlier, you can see why they would dip into the same well. But the difference here in Holiday Affair is that Connie is actually seeing a guy. His name is Carl, and he's played by Wendell Corey, who would five years later appear in Hitchcock's Rear Window. He really wants to marry her, but she's reticent. She goes in to check in on Timmy at one point to see if he's asleep. He's not. And when she asks what he's doing up, he answers that he can't fall asleep. So she does what any good parent would do with a child who's got insomnia. She asks him if he likes the idea of a house with trees, a yard, maybe even a dog, and, oh, yeah, a new father. The next day, back at the toy store, she comes in with the train set and, again, impatiently calls out, Could you wait on me, please? Only this time, Steve Mason is now wearing a full monkey mask and carrying one of the little girls in his arms. He sees Connie just as the floor walker angrily comes over and snatches the girl out of his arms and he takes his mask off. Okay, I don't know where this girl's parents were supposed to be, but mother of God. Steve correctly guesses that she's a comparison shopper and he's about to call security. She gets nervous and begs him not to. She says she's a single working mother, a war widow who needs her job. He takes pity on her, says he'll write her a refund slip if she promises not to come back into his department again, like ever. She agrees, but here's the loophole. He said his department, not the store itself. Sure enough, she then ventures into men's clothing to ask for a suit. At the counter of the men's clothing department, she asks, could you wait on me, please? You see a pattern developing here? Just as Steve comes up from behind her and pretends to be her husband for the befuddled clerk behind the counter. Uh, could you wait on me, please? I'd like to see the union suit that you have advertised. Rib cotton, fleece line, long sleeves, and I think it Darling, also has... you remembered. And kisses her horrified cheek and puts his arm around her shoulder. Turns out the floor walker had overheard their conversation upstairs and had turned Steve into the boss for not reporting her. Steve is now out of a job. She feels terrible when he tells her this, and this meet-cute then takes them into Central Pack with a romantic lunch of hot dogs from one of the vendors. So the question is, what happens when there is a romantic spack but you were just proposed to the night before? And you have a little boy who doesn't want you remarrying at all. And you don't know if you want to remarry at all. And what if your current beau and your new friend, in this case, Colin Steve, meet each other in a scene filled to the brim with awkwardness? And what if the new guy you just met, Steve, psychoanalyzes you, your relationship with your son, 
your handling of the death of your husband, and your current romantic status with Carl after knowing you for all of five to six hours, and somehow still manages to hit all of the right notes, getting you to say, this chap knows me better than anybody. And what if, after knowing your little son for all of ten minutes in your own living room, he gets ready to leave, but first asks to go into your son's room to say goodbye, and proceeds to have a closed-door conversation that lasts for three and a half minutes? And what if your deceased husband's parents have Christmas dinner with you, your little son, and both men? I'll tell you what happens with all of that. A charming 1949 Christmas movie that is wide-eyed, innocent, maybe not the best Christmas movie ever made, a little contrived, but I think worth seeing. If anything, to see Robert Mitchum play sweet and sentimental, and Janet Leigh in her first leading role, and, to be candid, one hell of a train set. Let's put the Holiday Affair plot set up into the depot for a bit and pivot towards our second movie, Christmas with the Cranks, starring Janet Leigh's real-life daughter, Jamie Lee Curtis. This one came out in theaters globally beginning in late November and throughout December of 2004. This one is based on the novel Skipping Christmas by John Grisham, who of course has made a name for himself as a former lawyer turned author of such titles as The Farm, A Time to Kill, The Pelican Brief, all made into huge legal thrillers with A-list actors like Tom Cruise, Sandra Bullock, Matthew McConaughey, Julia Roberts, and Denzel Washington. The screenplay for Christmas with the Cranks was written by Chris Columbus, who already was the holiday maestro as the director of Home Alone in 1990, as well as the screenwriter for Gremlins and Gremlins to the New Batch. According to IMDb, Joe Roth, the director, only has six films on his directing resume. He's made more of a splash as a producer, with 96 titles listed and another 27 currently in the pipeline. Tim Allen, of course, was no stranger to Christmas comedies, having made The Santa Claus in 1994 and the first sequel in 2002. The third would come out in 2006, two years after Christmas with the Cranks. And Jamie Lee Curtis was hot off her Golden Globe-nominated performance in the hit 2003 comedy Freaky Friday, as well as the abominable embarrassment that was 2002's Halloween Resurrection, or Halloween 8. And Saturday Night Live alum and Ghostbuster Dan Aykroyd is also on board as the grumpy, pretentious neighbor Vic Fromeyer. This is actually his fourth film with Curtis. They were love interests in their first three films together. Trading Places in 1983, My Girl in 1991, and My Girl 2 in the 1994 sequel. But in this one, they're just neighbors with a big bone to pick about a Frosty the Snowman roof decoration. The opening shot is a close-up of an alarm clock reading 7.59 a.m. We hear the Christmas song by the Danish punk rock duo The Ravionettes. The camera slowly pans to the left, and there is Luther Crank, played by Tim Allen, sitting up in bed, looking pensive and melancholy, with his palm against his cheek. He says nothing, but he is clearly wide awake. The pan to the left continues, and sitting up next to him in bed is his wife, Nora Crank, Jamie Lee Curtis. As she enters the frame, courtesy of the pan, she's looking equally emotional. They're staring off in a space, in opposite directions, which is... A pretty cool sort of visual foreshadowing of the differences in opinion that will be played out later on. The alarm clock goes off. He absently turns it off and says, we should get moving. It's a big day. They get out of bed, and then we dissolve to the interior of an airport terminal. Nora is clutching the hand of her daughter Blair, played by Julie Gonzalo, as this family of three make their way to her gate. True to the family name of Crank, Luther laments, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, busiest travel day of the year. Remind me again, Blair, why you're traveling today? Ignoring him, with tears in her eyes, Blair turns, faces them both, and says, The year will fly by. I'll be home next Christmas. Blair hugs them both, tears all around, I love yous, and she's off. Driving home from the airport in the pouring rain, Nara sadly says that Christmas won't be the same, and do you think she'll be okay in Peru in the Peace Corps? Luther replies that she'll be fine. 
They swing by a corner market store because she needs some white chocolate and pistachios for a lunch that she's hosting the next day. He begrudgingly agrees to go in and get them. And there's a slapstick sequence involving a forgotten umbrella, a pothole, cars whizzing past and splashing hapless Luther, a sidewalk Santa pushing umbrellas he's trying to sell, and an awning that collapses and douses Luther. He sputters and shivers, and then he sees an ad for a Caribbean cruise line. Carnival Cruise Lines gets a nice little plug. And the ad has your typical image of a scantily clad couple, hand in hand, running happily along the shore, smiling at each other to confirm how hot they look in a two-piece bikini and a speedo. It's now a good time to remind everyone, though, what Jamie Lee Curtis recently said about pictures used in ads and promotional materials. Any picture you see of anybody has been altered. So if you look in the mirror and you're looking at a picture of a person that you admire in show business and you think, wow, I don't look like that, they don't look like that. Hmm. They don't look like that. It has been altered. It has been falsified. It is a fake. Unfortunately, Luther missed the boat on that one. See what I did there? The boat? Sorry. But he stares fixedly at the ad, and an idea hits amidst the thunder and the lightning and the rain and everything. He goes to work the next morning, runs some numbers to some fast-paced music, and beams. That night at dinner, he springs his plan on Nora. She's going on about how, for the first time in 23 years, Blair won't be there for Christmas. He's just giddy as a schoolboy. She looks at him and chuckles, says, finish eating. He says, I'm done eating. I'm not done with you. I'll be right back. He leaves the room. She thinks he's setting a romantic mood. She gleefully takes off her Christmas vest and pounds two glasses of wine in prolonged, delicious anticipation. And then Romeo comes in with a boombox on his shoulder and a Hawaiian shirt doing these crazy dance moves as only Tim Allen can. She seems totally cool with what she thinks is some pretty unusual but kinky foreplay. He clears the table, making her smile even wider. She thinks they're going to have each other for dessert and says, shut the curtains. And then he springs the cruise idea on her. And he says, we skip Christmas. We save the money, spend it on ourselves for a change, a total boycott of Christmas. She says, well, we can still give to the children's hospital in the church, right? He says, no, total boycott, and that's all I'm going to say about that. She says, well, then, no. Later in bed, in a great touch of characterization, you see her reading Chicken Soup for the Mother's Soul. He's next to her and agrees to give to the same charities as always. She then smiles and says, okay, then, you're on. And then she's on him. The next day, he types a memo to his colleagues to say he's not doing Christmas. He's not going to the office patty. He's not going to be exchanging any gifts. He ostentatiously distributes paper copies of these suckers personally to everyone. Meanwhile, she's having lunch with a couple of friends. One of them, in an amusing little touch, named Mary. And she awkwardly admits that they're skipping Christmas and will not be hosting their annual Christmas Eve patty. This takes the Mary out of Mary as everyone in the restaurant stares at her in astonishment and disgust. Luther even tells a couple of Cub Scouts selling trees door-to-door that they're not buying a tree from them this year, that he's going on a cruise instead. The two Scouts and the father they're with angrily stomp off, and then they rat the cranks out to their neighbor, Vic Fromeyer, as Nora calls him, the unelected ward boss of the street, played by Dan Aykroyd. An epic intro close-up as he slowly turns to face the camera menacingly when he hears about the poor Cub Scouts' plight. Vic Fromeyer lives and breathes for this neighborhood. You should have just bought the tree. You didn't have to put it up. You could have left it in the backyard. Quiet. Why are you whispering, Luther? This is our house. I'm whispering for the same reason you're hiding behind that curtain. Hey, Walt. Luther Crank just stiffed the scouts on a Christmas tree. Can you believe that, Mr. Fromeyer?
before long from I is reminding Luther that everybody on Hemlock Street decorates and bakes cookies and swaps gifts and puts up frosty decorations for the annual street decorating contest for the local paper, the Gazette. The guilt works on Nora, who protests to Luther that Frosty is a neighborhood tradition. Luther's comeback is that Frosty is a neighborhood decoration, and he will not be told by Fromaya what to do with his house for Christmas. This whole idea of skipping Christmas is his way of trying to convince Nara that they'll both be better off eliminating holiday stress and, on a deeper level, running away from the reality of the pain of missing their only child. He walks into work the next morning to cold and icy stairs. I mean, we're talking polar ice cap. He's called Scrooge to catcalls of Bah Humbug. Meanwhile, back at home on Hemlock Street, directly across the obviously fake houses on the studio lot, that is, Hemlock Street, is an elderly married couple, the brutally insulting Walt Scheel and his wife Bev, played by M. Emmett Walsh and Elizabeth Franz. They do factor into the plot eventually, but I won't say how and why. There is an amusing sequence where Vic has his hands on his hips on the Crank's front lawn and hollers at their closed front door, Nora Crank, we're here for Frosty, with a gang of kids on their bikes and a few other neighborhood adults. She's ducking under the windows and hiding behind curtains and calling Luther at work all panic-stricken. And we have a few horror movie music cues, the sounds of Jamie Lee Curtis shrieking and whimpering, and if this is not a deliberate, good-natured jab in the ribs to her revered status of screen queen, then I ask you, what is? It's not side-splittingly funny, but it works. She gets into her car and drove slowly out of her garage and begins to make her way down the street when suddenly Michael Myers jumps into the frame out of nowhere. Nora? Oh! Nora, stop oh! the car. Stop oh! the car. Please. Now, please, talk to me, Nora. Give us Frosty. Please. We just want Frosty. Talk to me, Nora. No, wait. Actually, Dan Aykroyd. Sorry. There are more amusing scenes involving tanning booths and a local priest, and a randomly inserted subplot involving a burglar who disappears from the film just as suddenly as he shows up. A memorable reaction to a Botox injection, but let's end the setup here. I'm not going to go on record as saying that Christmas with the Cranks is the best Christmas comedy ever. It's uneven. It has way too many false endings before the credits actually do roll. But it's a fun watch if you're willing to put all logic and common sense and anything remotely related to reason aside for about 85 minutes or so. There's a plot twist about halfway through, which I'm not going to reveal, and then the story veers off into a different direction, where the momentum does pick up before, like I said, sputtering out towards the end when it can't seem to make up its mind what the final scene should be. The movie is not compulsory holiday viewing, but I wouldn't call it one for the Razzie Awards either. Alrighty-roo, so now let's issue the spoiler alert as we dive into a few behind-the-scenes fun facts for both films. So if you want no spoilers, hit pause now, go watch the movies, and then come back and finish this up. It will be waiting for you. We have three facts for each film for a grand total of six. And first up is Holiday Affair. Number three. Janet Lee was only 14 years older than the actor who plays her son, Timmy. He was born in 1941, which would make him about eight years old at the time of the production, while she was only 22. Number two. If you're familiar with the name Bosley Crowther, then you probably know that he was one of the famed film critics for the New York Times for years. His review of Holiday Affair is inconsistent at best and what the f*** at worst. He wrote of Janet Lee and Gordon Gieber, quote, Miss Lee covers up with pouts and dimples a peculiarly shallow, selfish dame. As for young Master Gebert, he is simply not our idea of a genuine and winning youngster. However, no harm is done. End quote. No harm is done. 
Does he mean that the kid didn't burn down the set? I mean, what the hell is that supposed to mean? And number one. The movie lost $300,000 upon its initial release. Akio redid the poster in a vain attempt to remarket the film as a Robert Mitchum picture, the tough guy known at the time for film noir like Out of the Past. The new tagline read, It happens in December, but it's hotter than July. And the new image has him standing behind her, leaning in her direction, and grabbing her around the arm. She's dressed in bright red and looking up at him with an agitated look on her face. Festive indeed. As for Christmas with the Cranks, try these on for size. Number three. Towards the end of the film, when Luther and Nora are frantically trying to throw together a Christmas Eve party for Blair and her new fiancé, and Luther is hanging upside down from the roof after an epic frosty fail, look carefully at the firefighters who come to rescue him. You can see when they pull out the ladder... One of the firefighters in the background got bonked off the head, knocking him sideways. Somehow it made it into the final print of the film. Number two. Tom Poston, who plays George in TV's Bob Newhart in the 1980s, appears here as a horrified Vather Zabriskie when he takes an unexpected gander at Luther in a Speedo and Nora in a two-piece bikini. He worked with Tim Allen before. He made several appearances in the 90s on Allen's hit sitcom Home Improvement. So, too, did M. Emmett Walsh, who plays the prickly neighbor, Walt Scheel. And number one. When Luther and Nora are hiding behind the curtains and looking out at Vic Frohmeyer on their front lawn, Luther turns to her and says, Frohmeyer has a problem with us skipping Christmas this year? Who's he going to call? An obvious tongue-in-cheek reference to Ghostbusters, which Aykroyd co-wrote and co-starred in back in 1984. And now it's time for the final segment of today's show. The trivia. There was no poll this week, but in the last full episode, we celebrated the 75th anniversary of It's a Wonderful Life, starring Jimmy Stewart. I mentioned how he made a 1940 movie called Shop Around the Corner, sometimes called his other Christmas movie, and how it was remade in 1998 with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan with a different title. What was that 1998 remake? And the correct answer is... You've got mail! Two winners this time around. Congratulations and happy Yuletide to Mary C. and Edward R. Memes coming your way shortly to the two of you. Thank you, as always, for playing along. As for this episode's trivia question, let's go to Janet Lee and Jamie Lee Curtis once more. They appeared on screen together in a couple of horror movies, 1980's The Fog and 1998's Halloween H2O 20 Years Later. But they also made a guest appearance together in a late 70s, early 80s TV show, the same episode, about a cruise ship called The Pacific Princess. The show was gaudy and tacky. Anybody who was anybody in Hollywood clamored to guest star on it at one point or another. It was considered, for the time, suggestive and shallow, and it was a huge hit, lasting for about, I think, maybe eight, nine, maybe ten years. Name this nighttime soap opera, produced by Aaron Spelling before he went on to more sophisticated and thought-provoking pathos like Beverly Hills 90210. Like I always say, it doesn't matter when you send in your answer. If you're listening to this and it's February, if you're listening to episodes out of order, no matter. Just answer whichever question from whatever episode you want, whenever you feel compelled to. You'll get a personalized meme and a shout-out in the following episode. Send your answers on over, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments, thoughts of your own on either of today's films, hit me up on my socials, FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, the Film Group Silver Screeners on Facebook, Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram, or you can email me at frankmendoza at yahoo.com. All right, and that just about does it for episode 34. As always, folks, thank you for taking the time to listen. 
be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And no complaints here if you take a second to give the show a rating on Apple, iTunes, Good Pods. And now you can leave ratings on Spotify as well, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Ratings and reviews do help to boost the algorithms and get more people to discover the show. If you want to leave a quick review, that would be great to get any honest feedback. Happy Yuletide, everybody. Thank you again. I'll be seeing you in the next episode. Until next time, keep on screening. And I leave you with this one thought. Have you ever heard the frighteningly aggressive Ray Conniff Singer's version of Carol of the Bells? It sounds like something straight out of a horror movie. Picture Janet Lee and the shower murder scene in Psycho. Next time you hear the closing measures of this holiday ditty.